Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm uh, joined by my two trusty co-hosts, uh, Ryan Sweet, uh, Ryan's Director of Real-Time Economics, and Chris, Chris Dorides, uh, who went AWOL last week. He, I see you're back, Chris. Deputy I'm back. I'm back. How was your I, vacation? I caught you the uh, podcast. What's that? You were gone for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, three weeks. Yeah, you look rested. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit of a. Spatical. I was until I heard the last podcast. Uh, yeah, uh, we were why? What? What? what, oh, what, what a little, we uh, a little trash talking there. Oh, oh really? Oh, don't, you don't do remember, remember that, right? I won't bring it up. Oh, I remember it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do. You <laughs> yeah, your so trash talking got Chris you know? back on Twitter. So, what's that? Your trash yeah. talking last week got Chris back on active on Twitter. So, yeah. oh, that's it's right. It was enough to motivate me. Yeah. You, you, Chris, are because you've been avoiding. You were like the maven of LinkedIn, and now you're, you're, you have joined Twitter, right? So, what's your handle? Middleway Econ. Oh, that now that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's that perfect. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Right down the fairway economics, right? <laughs> yeah, I like that. And uh, so, what made you decide to to join the Twitter sphere? Uh, you, yeah, me. I- it was, uh, you know, the trash talking, uh, you know, had to, had to get right. back on and see what, what was go- actually going on. <laughs> well, I'm still trying to figure it out though. It feels like you're just going to be on social media all the time now. No, no, no. no. All right. Okay. Right. Very good. Well, it's no, good to have you back. Uh, we missed you last week. Um, had, we had a good podcast and um, I'm, oh, we're also joined by, I think this is the right word, a bevy of colleagues. Uh, folks that have been on before. I think everyone's been on before. We've got Mike Brisson. Mike um, is uh, the fellow who uh, looks at everything vehicles. Good to have you, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I I, I should say to preface all this, obviously, I guess I was just taking this for granted. We're talking about inflation. That's what we're talking about here. That consumer price number, the index number that came out on, I guess it was Wednesday. So Wednesday, yeah, yeah, Wednesday, pretty ugly. And then the producer price index that folks don't follow nearly as closely, but that was pretty ugly too, wasn't it, Ryan? On that it came was. Out on Thursday, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah the only good that. inflation news came out this morning with import prices falling. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I saw that. We can talk about that as as well. Uh, but we got, you know, obviously one big aspect of oh, so we've got all of the all our colleagues here because we're going to dig deep into the consumer price index what's driving the high inflation. And, and to do that, we got Mike, who's Mike Person, who's going to talk about vehicle prices, which was a bit of, bit of a surprise, at least to me, uh, increased in the month. We've got uh, uh, Chris Lafakis and Juan Pablo Fuentes. Uh, you guys are uh, energy, all things energy. And obviously that's a big part of the inflation story. So we want to dig deep into that. We have Jesse Rogers going to talk about food prices. Uh, food prices are up a lot. Uh, everything's up a lot, but uh, food prices in particular, and uh, we have him for that. And of course, we're going to talk about rents, but uh, and housing uh, services costs. But uh, I think Chris, you're going to cover that for us as well. So we, we've got our, all our bases covered. Um, so uh, welcome, guys. Good to have you. Hi, everyone. Hello. 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 Good to have you. Yeah. So any w- words of wisdom before we dive in? Jesse, you're always good with philosophical statements. Do you have any, any <laughs> well, statements you want to make? I just hope we get to food because I, I came hungry today. 
Um, I don't know if I'm going to leave happy, depending on how dismal the conversation gets, but at least eager to join. Well, yeah. And to be with everybody. Jesse, you're right, because sometimes I I invite you on and I I, I don't invite you to speak. (laughs) That's kind of rude. Yeah, it's our dynamic. You know. <laughs> so hang tight, buddy. We'll yeah, get, warm, we'll get let me you. warm the bench for a little while. We and, might get yeah. to you, you know, next March or something. But just hang on, hang on. Yeah, by the inflation's, uh, you know, that hopefully coming down. But <laughs> which is really a shame because you have a lot of really cool things to say. We were talking about sorghum prices before we went on, and you know all about sorghum. I like I didn't even know what sorghum was. But you oh, know it's, a, it it's a burgeoning market. A burgeoning, <laughs> and, and you and you use big words too, which is really good. <laughs> well, thank really you. Good. <laughs> all right all right very good it's good to have you guys okay all right let's get down to business oh and we are going to play the game but I, we can't play the game with all the with this with the the bevy of colleagues that would take forever so we'll, but we'll play the game the statistics game everyone knows what that is we'll, we'll come back to that but uh, before we we get there uh let's get a lay of the land so ryan what the heck uh i think the cpi number was even hotter than you expected, right? And you pre- expected a pretty hot number. So why don't you give us a sense of, of the, the the statistics, the CPI statistics? Yeah, I feel like I repeat myself every month. It was another ugly CPI print. So the consumer price index, which measures prices for goods and services that you and I are buying, uh, that was up more than 1% again. Uh, but I think the concern is that the price pressures are broadening out. So more and more of the components of the CPI uh, are rising and rising very, very quickly. And that caught the attention, uh, attention of the Fed and financial markets. So after the CPI came out, which was you know, you know, much hotter than people were anticipating, it was up on a year ago basis, uh, a little bit more than 9%. And that's you know an enormous number. It's the highest since the early 1980s. Uh, markets started pricing in a hundred basis point rate hike. And we can get back to this later uh, You know, in Fed tightening in July. So that's that's... It's a full percentage point. That's a full percentage layman. point. That's, yeah. yeah. So last month, uh, the Fed raised rates by 75 basis points, which was the most they've done since 1994. Uh, so this is even more aggressive. And I think uh, part of the reason is that you know it's not just attributed to you know you know one or two components of the CPI anymore. It's it's starting to really broaden out. And so when you look at the July or the uh, June CPI, uh, energy prices were a big factor. They added. 3.6 percentage points to year-over-year growth in June. So we had 9.1% year-over-year, 3.6 mm-hmm. percentage, uh, percentage points of that was just attributed to energy. And that's heating oil, that's uh, electricity, utility costs. Gasoline was an enormous part of that. Uh, and then, of course, we have to look at supply chain con- uh, constraint oh, wait, components. Before you, just so I yep. understand that, is that, is that just the direct impact of higher energy costs? Correct. That's the direct effect. So it does not include the impact that energy is having on everything else, the indirect effects. Correct. So, you know, economists, we look at the core CPI, which strips out food and energy, which is just the direct energy effect, uh, because that's a good idea of where core inflation is going to be in the future. Uh, But energy prices filter down into other parts of the core CPI, say, for example, airfares or public transportation, uh, so that's not measuring that indirect effect of or food. energy or, and food, right? Exactly. Yeah. And Jesse yeah. will get to get to that. Uh, but energy is all over the place, and it's affecting a lot of the prices that you and I are paying. So, so what you're saying is, consumer price inflation year over year through the month of June was nine point one, 
the if energy prices were just and that's gasoline and electricity and natural mm -hmm. gas if that was just flat did, had not changed overall inflation that 9.1% would be down by 3.6 percentage points Correct. and that's the direct effect doesn't doesn't consider what higher diesel means for food it doesn't consider the jet fuel prices for airline tickets and so forth and so on so so it feels like is it fair to say roughly speaking that if energy prices not that they if they don't even have to fall they just have to go sideways if they just go mm -hmm. sideways for a while then inflation would be roughly half of what half. it is today yep at least half yep at least half still very high but but manageable like i mean you easier for the fed to bring that down than you know what they're doing right now okay okay fair enough and this is obviously why we've got chris and and juan mm -hmm. pablo on the call because we this is critical to understanding future inflation what happens with oil prices what happens with natural gas you know going forward that's key to the inflation outlook. yeah and that, it, that's why july is going to be much better because you know gasoline prices have come down global oil prices have come down so we're going to see some relief in july Okay, and we'll come back to that. Okay, so yeah. so go on. You're decomposing the nine point one percent. You now have accounted for the energy. What else is going yep. on? So the biggest head headache, of course, is energy. Then second comes supply chain uh, issues. Uh, and what we did was we go through all the components of the CPI and identified what was, you know, those components that are being uh, significantly affected by supply chain. So think uh, new and used vehicles. Uh, uh, audio, video equipment, uh, you know, children's apparel, things like that. Uh, and that added uh, 1.1 percentage points to year-over-year -year growth in the, in the CPI. So energy added 3.6, tack on another 1.1 for this temporary effect of, of supply chains. The good news is that we're seeing some improvement on the supply chain front. In, uh, you know, in fact, that the supply chain constrained components of the CPI are adding less and less over the last several months to year-over-year -year growth in, in the CPI. So would, would vehicle prices be part of the supply chain? Yes. Okay. They're, they're like the poster child for- the poster chain. child. Yeah. yeah. And when you even decompose like the supply chain contribution, like most of it is becoming is coming from new and used vehicles. And, and just to connect you know, the dots, you go, you go back now almost a year ago, the Delta wave hit mm -hmm. of the virus. It shut down- uh, a lot of Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, chip plants shut down. You can't produce chips. They go into vehicles. You can't produce vehicles. Uh, inventories collapse. Nothing on dealer lots. Vehicle prices go skyward. So that that's mm -hmm. what you mean by supply chain disruption and, and vehicles being the poster child for that. Yeah, supply chain. I mean, it's both supply, like the supply of containers or you know, looking at a uh, number of ships that are parked off the port of Long Beach. It's also demand as well because you know the consumers. You and I were buying a lot of stuff over the last you know year, two years, and that uh, exacerbated the problems that we were experiencing with the supply chains, and that drove prices up, you know, through the roof. Because you know we got retail sales this morning; they were really strong, uh, and retail sales are goods, and most of those goods we import, and that's you know a, a key source of uh, the inflation that we're experiencing. So you got energy number one. Supply chains coming in at number two, and then you have the the still reopening effect. So as the economy is you know, coming back, you know those areas that were you know hit really really hard by the pandemic. So I think restaurants, for example, uh, hotels, motels, uh, even airlines. You know they're 
starting to raise prices pretty aggressively. And but that only added 0.3 percentage points to uh, year-over-year growth in the CPI in in June. So 3.6 percentage points came from energy. 1.1 came from uh, uh, supply chains. 0.3 came from the reopening. So if you exclude those, if you exclude energy reopening and supply chains, the CPI was up uh, 4.1% on a year-ago basis in uh, June, which is still high. Uh, and that's stronger than 3.7% that we got in May. Uh, and I think that's one reason why you know, the Fed's getting a little bit more nervous is that some of these price pressures are broadening out. Well, just to complete the story, suppose, and I know it's hard to calculate, but your sense of it, if I account for the indirect effects of the higher energy prices, yeah, what would inflation be? CPI inflation be closer. In, 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 what would it be? Three, three and a half. Okay, three and a half. Let's say, just be conservatively speaking, three and a half percent. And the Federal Reserve Board's target for CPI inflation high end, I would put at two and a half percent. Two and a half. Yep. So what you're saying is then, you know, all in the, in the, when you say exclude, people say, well, why are you excluding? I mean, the point is that these things are indeed temporary, more or Mm -hmm. less. They're, they're, they're not persistent. Let's put it that way. Temporary people think next month, they're not persistent for a long period of time. Unless you, because it goes back to things like the pandemic, it goes back to things like the Russian Invasion, invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. The, I guess we need to talk about that more, and they could last for longer and be more disruptive for longer going forward. But if they simply not go away, because I don't think Putin's going to stand down anytime soon, and the pandemic's not going away, we're going to get other waves of the virus. But if they simply are like this, we've seen the worst of the disruptions by those uh, those uh, uh, big shocks to the economy. What you're saying is that inflation should moderate back into something around the mid threes would be mm-hmm. what you're saying. Exactly. And I think you know people have jumped off the transitory bandwagon. And I think one reason is that people kind of put a time horizon around it. When I view transitory, I look at whether or not it's fundamentals, you know, versus these temporary supply shocks. And it all our inflation problems are supply shocks. It's not, you know, it's you know, not fundamentally being driven by changes in population or you know, a really tight labor market. It's we got Russia invading Ukraine, which ju- juiced up oil prices, the pandemic, which roiled supply chains, uh, the reopening of the economy, which is temporary, and that's you know boosting inflation as well. So, and just to make it clear, to strike the point home, if if energy prices simply go flat and the supply chain issues continue to iron themselves out and moderate. Mm-hmm. That's going from nine, one to three, five. But Correct. if they actually decline, if energy prices actually decline, mm-hmm. and we're going to come back to that, it feels like at some point, and they already are, they've already declined, you know, uh, since we're at the peak back a month ago, that, that is going to put, at least on top line inflation, going to put significant downward pressure. And we could be bo- below the Fed's target at some point here. Yeah, we will. We most likely will. And, and that's, Kind of assumed in our baseline is that you know we get a lot of goods disinflation uh, in goods being like stuff that we buy, right? Uh, and that's that's needed to offset because plain devil's advocate, like if that we don't get that goods disinflation, if something else goes wrong, you know, if China locks down again, yeah, uh, 
we have services inflation that is really beginning to uh, accelerate. So one thing I didn't mention was that rents picked up. So they're accelerating and they added two percentage points to year-over-year growth in the CPI in June. And that, oh. was a, that was the largest contribution since the early 1990s. So we have a rental inflation problem coming and it's only going to get worse this summer and you know later this year. So we need that, we need that goods disinflation. We need energy prices to come down or inflation is going to be higher for longer. Oh, that's, I, did, I didn't realize that. So the uh, acceleration in the uh, CPI for housing services, which obviously is tied back to the very strong growth in rents, added two percentage points to inflation, CPI inflation in the mm-hmm. year ending in June. Yep. And that was the largest since the early 1990s. So, And we'll definitely come back to that as well, because that, that is more persistent. That, that yeah, that's more. those are sticky prices. So th- another way you can kind of easily like look at the CPI is break it down into, and I'm, I think it, this is it, the Atlanta Fed does this. They break it yeah. down into sticky components versus you know more volatile components. Uh, and sticky inflation is picking up. And most of that is is because of rents. Right. Okay. All right. Let, let's just stop there. Let me turn to Chris because, uh, you know, I've kind of guided the conversation in a certain way here. And I'm just curious if, what you think? Uh, well, for, first of all, can fill in any holes in what Ryan said? Did he miss anything that we should be talking about in the report uh, or inflation more broadly? And and kind of sort of what the implications are. So what, what do you think of that conversation we've had so far? I think uh, Ryan did a great job of, of summarizing. Um, well, that, mentioned this, but, that, but I'll that underscore. Just, that but. just doesn't sound right, Ryan, when he, he leads with a compliment that mm-hmm. always makes me sweat a little bit. No, he's building oh, up to, the butt. To, to, like <laughs> the butt. Oh, the butt had, oh, the butt, oh, slow on the yeah. butt. Okay, there you go. No, no, I, yeah. not so much a butt, just to underscore. This was a bad report. This was terrible. It was, uh, uh, Ryan mentioned it was the, uh, it was widespread inflation. It's not just concentrated in a few items. It's, it's everywhere. And it's in items that we also thought we're not going to experience a lot of inflation, like uh, furniture, right? We had expected with the supply chains and Target and Walmart saying that they have a lot of excess inventory now that we wouldn't see much price growth. We'd actually get some relief in those products, but we actually saw some acceleration <laughs> in the prices of those products as well. So I, I, I don't want to, sh- I don't think we need to sugarcoat this report. It was, it was pretty bad. Um, and we're hopeful that it, things that it's at the peak and things will improve, but I still think there's a lot of risk out there. It can't uh, get much worse. It can't get any worse. I mean, that was awful. Well, uh, I seem to recall that statement back in March, right? Yeah, true. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> but that, 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 but that's, that simply goes to the timing of the oil price peak, right? I mean, the thing that mm-hmm. we didn't expect in March or you know, we were forecasting was that European Union would not sanction oil, right? And therefore, they did. And oil prices jumped again, and therefore we got the peak in June, which is the data we're talking about, right? So, yeah, yeah but you know there can be other shoes to drop. Okay, fair enough. Too, right? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, we're still, and we'll get into the, the uh, energy markets, I'm sure, but uh, mm-hmm. there's still right issues both on the supply and the demand side. The sanctions, yeah, they, they haven't really gone into effect fully yet, so we don't know every, all the uh, the ramifications of that. So. Yeah, I guess to your point about the broadening out, the one thing that did make me, well, everything about the report was, as you said, bad, uh, ugly, 
But the one thing that kind of made me particularly nervous was the acceleration in inflation for medical care, because that has been up to this point pretty modest and tame. And that's not such a big part of the consumer price index, right? CPI, it's a very, I think the the, the share of the uh, of the uh, CPI that it goes to vehicles is greater than the CPI that goes to medical care because it's not the CPI measure is kind of out of pocket expenses and a lot of the medical care that we consume is uh, insurance companies covering that. So, but that goes to the difference between the CPI and the con- core consumer expenditure deflator, which is actually the measure the Fed is generally sure. most focused on. There. Uh, medical care p- plays a much larger role. There's a much larger share of that index, and that makes me that makes me particularly nervous that that's picking up. A- any insight on that? Because we we don't have an expert here talk going to talk about that. But it, Ryan, you, you just got to you got to be careful with the medical components of the CPI, you know, including physician uh, physicians and hospital prices because the response rate. So what's the share of the uh, the the universe that they're, they're going out and surveying the Bureau of Labor Statistics every single month has dropped. It's like, it's to the point where it's, it's very unreliable. I don't think it's a complete sample of what prices are actually doing. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Um, okay. All right. Well, that's, that's good. So, okay. Let's now uh, dig deep into some of these uh, components of the consumer price index that are, are have been and are adding a lot to the uh, to inflation and uh, in the and we're doing this to try to better understand what's driving that higher inflation then and then perhaps more importantly what does it mean about where inflation is headed over the next 12 24 36 months so to that end Mike Mike Brisson, let, let me start with you in vehicle prices as I mentioned earlier they they rose both you new and used vehicle prices rose in June in that for me was the biggest surprise in the report. I had expected used vehicle prices to decline because you have taught me to look at auction prices and our own index that you construct based on auction prices, you know, actual transaction level prices. And that showed a big decline in June, right? And it's not showing up in the CPI. So can you give us a sense of what's going on uh, there, Mike? Yeah, so our auction is a, a wholesale price index. Our auction index, our, the Moody's Analytics sale price index, we're, we're looking at uh, hundreds of thousands of transactions each month uh, that come out of the auctions. About 80% of auction transactions are shown in our, our data. But the uh, CPI, they're looking at 480 observations at retail stores. So do a a picture across the country and then you, you add on the sales tax as well in each part of that country. And you're looking at uh, just 480 observations and it's not seasonally adjusted, whereas our index is seasonally adjusted. Um, it, it, rightfully so, it's not seasonally adjusted. There's not the large peaks and valleys that you have in the auctions where uh, in the spring you have dealerships that load up on inventory. So prices go really high and then they unload inventory towards the end of the year. And so th- there's a lot more seasonality in the auctions than there are in the retail. So the CPI isn't uh, seasonally adjusting either, but the CPI is down um, from its peak over 1%. Uh, we're expecting it to go down. It's CPI has been, uh, it lags the wholesale auctions. So you imagine Dealers go to the wholesale auctions, they pay a certain price and they pass those prices on to consumers. Mm. So if, if they're paying less now in June, like we're seeing at the wholesale auctions, 
presumably the later in the year, the CPI will go down uh, in response. Okay. So you're saying it's a matter of time. Yes. Well, I, I believe the wholesale auctions will stay relatively steady because uh, new vehicle supply still remains low uh, over the rest of the year. Uh, but I do think that the CPI will come down a bit over the rest of the year uh, from what we're seeing in the wholesale prices. Yeah. And more, most fundamentally, I, as I said, mentioned earlier, it was goes back to supply chains, chips, lack of production, lack of inventory, vehicle prices go higher. And give us a sense of that dynamic. I mean, my understanding is chip production is starting to improve. Vehicle production is starting to improve. We're getting a little bit of improvement. If you look hard, I think at the data in inventories, they're still incredibly lean, but they're, they, they're off bottom, I think. And that, that does argue that the, uh, the very rapid increase in prices should come to an end. And we may even see some, as we were discussing price declines, is that, is that, kind of a reasonable description of what's going on? Exactly. Yep. So in the US, the production issue is different all over the world. And it it wasn't this way last year. No one could produce last year. Uh, Right now, the US is producing almost back at 2019 levels. We're about 10.7 SAR, seasonally adjusted analyzed rate uh, in May, uh, 10.5 million in uh, April. Uh, The 2019 average was 10.9 million. So we're right there uh, for the Six quarters before that, it was 9.2 million in the U.S. So we're back up to where we were. Uh, in Germany, uh, or Europe in general, but Germany I look at for Europe, it's probably down a little less than 20% from 2019 levels. Hmm. In Japan, where they're, uh, hit cl- they're closer to China, and so they were subject to all the, uh, the COVID lockdowns, they're about 30, 35% below where they were in 2019. So the U.S. is producing pretty much where they were prior to uh, the supply crunch. Germany, they got hit by the Ukraine crisis. A lot of the uh, internal components that they were running through Ukraine and all those industries slowed down or shut down. So they were hit by the war. So they had some supply constraint constraints there, supply chain constraints there. And Japan has uh, hit the worst because of their exposure to the Chinese lockdowns. Should we expect vehicle production to pick up in Germany and Japan? I mean, or... or- yep. We should. Okay. Yep. Let me ask another question, and this is tangential, but it's it's bothering me. Vehicle demand, you know, the the actual number of units that are being purchased, that remains very depressed. I think wasn't it thirteen million units? I think in June, something like that. Yeah, that's a, that was the SAR for June was thirteen. But demand, I like I like to look at the the miles driven and the. Statistics I would have used if I was playing the game would be uh, 3.75 trillion. That's how many miles were driven. You see how in he does past. that? He sneaks in the game. You see? <laughs> yeah. And hey, by the way, I would have gotten that. No problem, Mike. I'm just saying. Yeah. So it's, it's the highest May reading in history. So the miles traveled in the U.S. is the most ever, despite high fuel prices. So demand is out there, uh, and, and the high prices show demand is out there. It's a supply issue that's keeping our the new vehicle sales down. Okay, so okay, okay, so vehicle production is picking up. You're saying it, this hasn't picked up enough to start feeling, filling dealer lots sufficiently that they can sell more cars. Correct. Got it. And, but that's going to happen. It feels like that's happening. We're moving it's, in the right direction. Let's put it's, that. It's coming. It's coming. That's it's why I'm coming. happy to defend that forecast. I like to. I like that. And that here's the other thing. Used vehicle prices have shown some softness. They rose last month, but they in the if you go back a few months ago, we had seen some declines at, even at a retail level. New vehicle prices, no, no such thing. They keep every month. It's it's up a lot. I mean, 
if I were to assemble all the OEMs and say, let's collude and restrict supply as much as they have, you can raise prices. It's uh, the amount of supply that's out there. You're able to raise these transaction prices. So you cut off incentives. You're able to increase profits. And just go back to your industrial organization classes. <laughs> There's, you restrict that supply. You can raise prices. The transaction prices come up. And that's what's going on. Uh, okay, with so you're going prices. back to there's nothing on dealer lots yet. Therefore, prices aren't going to come in. It's only when we start to see enough production long enough that an inventory start to come off bottom that we'll actually see prices roll over. Yes. So the, you weren't implying collusion, though. You no, no, no. I'm saying no. if I were to design it, this is how I would have designed it. Oh, I it. see. I see. I see. It was a, a perfect yeah. storm for them. It, profit per, per vehicle sold has never been higher. Right. Okay. And, and they're OEM, able to raise MSRPs. OEM is jargon. That is original equipment manufacturer. Yeah. The, the so there's the producers. Cars. Yeah. Yep. Right. Okay. 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 So, all right. My takeaway, Ryan and Chris, correct me if you have a different takeaway or uh, let us know, is that we've got some optimism. We should have some optimism here from a prism of inflation. We're going to see prices start to come in here pretty significantly for both used and new, maybe, maybe, you know, month to month, who knows, but certainly by early next year, this time next year, we should be seeing definitive declines in vehicle prices. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, no, that, wait, Mike's got to answer that question. (laughs) And then we react to that. Oh, Oh. definitive declines this time next year. Yeah. Yes. There's right now it's a year over year price growth is about 7% in the CPI. It's, it feels like around 10. It was higher for new, lower for yeah. used. Yeah, so for 10. used, it's about 7%. New yeah. vehicles, I have a different outlook for than the used vehicles. I think I can see more price gains in the new vehicle market. The difference between new and used prices is over 20% right now. They historically track themselves. So depending how far down used come down and how high up new come down, those will have to equal out. So that 20% gap has to close somewhere. So it might be raising the used vehicle prices and the new, or raising the new vehicle prices and used vehicle prices coming down 10% each or uh, used vehicle prices come down 20%. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. extracting from all, that's, all real, that's I, I get it. But in aggregate, is it fair to say, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to put words in your mouth. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, you know, this is, I just want to make sure my forecast is right. A year from now, sequentially, month to month, a year year over year, that's a little trickier. But even year over year, we should see some declines in aggregate vehicle prices. Use new, combine it however you want to do it. Yes, and okay. it will be concentrated in the used. Okay, that's a big swing, right? We've gone from stratospheric increases to declines. And that should that should be that should have a meaningful impact. And by the way, you add it up. I think new and used are eight percent of the CPI index, so it's not inconsequential. It's, it's a consequential part of the index. Yeah. Okay. All right, and we just we it just to oh by the way, Ryan, Chris, anything there? Ryan said yeah, uh, he agrees yes. with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a yeah. used vehicle can't be an appreciating asset forever. Like that just is un- <laughs> yeah. it's unheard of. Oh, canopy, right? Yeah, invested okay. in forerunners last week. Yeah, Chris and price and prices will come down in a recession. So yes, yeah. there oh, you go. See, Chris is coming on rude. coming to the dark side. <laughs> rude. Well, even in a non-recession, what do you? I mean, because Chris is yes, yes. Mike's forecast is based 
but I should say these projections are based on no recession. Recession, we're in a different ball game. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Very good. Um, anything else, Mike? You want to bring up on the vehicle front before we move on to the next? Um, no, I think we're good. We got the trajectory. Okay. Well, thank you for that. It's pretty rare, though, for like you for like vehicles. No way, Chris. Chris, no, 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 no. I I'm leading the way here. You follow. You follow me. Uh, okay. I'm 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 moderator. So let me moderate. Uh, because we got a lot of ground to cover. I want to get to you, but before I get to you guys, I'm working backwards because uh, energy obviously is very important, but let's go to Jesse next, because if I don't go to Jesse now, we'll never get to Jesse. So Jesse, let's, let's talk about food prices, uh, which are up a lot too. Uh, I think in aggregate it, food at home and at restaurants is up double digit year over year, I believe in the CPI index. So, so what's, what's going on with food? Uh, what's driving those higher prices? It's driving higher prices. Um, it's, it's really a confluence. I, I like the word perfect storm that Mike used, the phrase perfect storm. Um, it's higher energy prices. Um, food manufacturing is energy intensive. Um, agriculture as an industry is energy intensive when it comes down to fuel, electricity costs, fertilizer. Um, you know, and of course we had, you know, the, um, almost explosion in commodity prices from the war in Ukraine. Um, markets have since rationalized a little bit. There was, you know, a spike when the war started wheat prices, grain prices, particularly because, you know, Russia and Ukraine are so important, um, you know, to global agricultural production, specifically in emerging markets. Um, and, um, you know, as, uh, you know, global shippers have, have figured out ways to move Russian wheat, uh, grain prices have come down. So, um, you know, food prices are, are high, um, but, uh, you know, they, they, they're probably going to level out. L- level out. Okay. So f- w- that means... It means like, uh, what does that mean? Year over year, food prices go flat, essentially? Yeah. So I, okay. I think, so, you know, usually, um, you know, prices for food, the stuff we consume, whether it's restaurants um, or at the grocery store, it typically responds to changes in commodity and energy prices um, with a lag. You know, just because food producers are, are locked into long-term agreements for their inputs. Um, and, you know, we've seen, food prices kind of, you know, lag the overall CPI and, you know, and, and are rising and kind of broke into this double digit range more recently. Um, you know, over the past couple of months, uh, we've seen prices for raw materials, you know, mainly um, grain prices, but also energy a little bit come in. Um, and that's eventually going to keep food prices, you know, from rising, you know, over the next couple of months. If we kind of look at that medium term outlook, you know, we're going to, you know, they'll remain high for, you know, things that are going on in, in the global farm economy that we can talk about. But in terms of contributing to inflation, that you know, food prices are going to, you know, food will be expensive, but, you know, we're not really seeing, you know, gains on a month-to-month basis going well, forward. Going forward, right. Okay. Yeah, going forward. So, you know, food prices are high. You know, they've come in and that's going to reduce pressure on, you know, on producers, both on the, you know, 
the raw input side and in food manufacturing. Um, and, you know, so, you know, food's contribution to overall inflation, um, which has come in, you know, hot and heavy, but, but with a lag, that's going to ease over the next, you know, both on a month to month basis and year over year. Um, okay. It doesn't mean consumers won't hurt, you know, because, you know, food prices are high, but in, in terms of, you know, contributing to further price gains, I think it's fair to say that we've seen, you know, most of the run up and we're past the peak. Okay. And kind of in my, you may have said this, but just to reiterate is there's two broad forces at work pushing up food prices. One is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the disruption to ag markets. Russia, Ukraine produce a lot of wheat, corn, sunflower oil, that kind of thing. And that's disrupted markets uh, significantly. Fertilizer, you know, obviously is important to a lot of different types of agricultural activities all around the world. Second thing that's been driving food prices is the higher energy prices. You got to get the, the food from the farm to the store shelf in a proverbial, proverbially speaking, and that you put it on a truck. So diesel prices are way up. And by the way, they haven't come in as much as gasoline prices over the last month or so, but there's, 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 they're very, very elevated. Those two things have driven this double digit, what we're now seeing through June increase in food prices. And in going forward, well, we're saying we're, we're going to come back to energy in a second, but that, you know, it does, we're, we're expecting uh, uh, energy prices to moderate, at least not rise any further. And we're saying on the Russian-Ukraine front that while that conflict is going to continue for the foreseeable future, the impact of that on ag prices, we've seen the worst of it. Is that, is that a fair characterization of your view? Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I I think one thing on you know on Russia Ukraine. Now he's sucking up. Now he's sucking <laughs> up. That. Now he's no, I, well, up. well, I mean, when it's fair, it's fair. Right, you know, okay. I, I like right. to you know let the chips fall. You know where where they may. Okay, very that's good. very fair. I, th- I think that's excellent. Mark. So if you if, so if I told you a year from now, uh, in June of 2023, year over year, CPI food inflation was zero or close to zero, you'd say, what? That sounds about right to you? Yeah. Um, or, or even unwinding, we could even see, you know, small on the, okay. on the negative side. Yeah. All right, Jesse, I'm holding you personally accountable <laughs> for this because right. Wawa's oh. Hoagie Fest is expensive this year. Is it? <laughs> this oh is yeah. Best time, this is the best time of year to Wawa's Hoagie Fest and it, prices are up. Well, and what makes it a, like they'd sell hoagies all year round. Why is this a fest this time of year? I mean, what makes it a fest? Well, they they reduce the prices. Oh, they do. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but it's still very elevated. The price. Yeah. Yeah, compared to last year. Yeah. I mean, think of what goes into a hoagie. I mean, I'm it's bread. Mark, you, it's you're at, yeah, you're at Wawa all the time. I, I've sworn off hoagies. I'm telling you. And I'm <laughs> it's all salami you guys. If I eat a hoagie, I won't eat for a week. You know, you're so. not allowed to live in Philadelphia. But yeah. Mark, you noticed the sixteen percent increase in hot dog prices, right? I love that goes right to your budget, right? <laughs> I love hot dogs. They're really they're up sixteen percent. I I knew wings were up a lot. At least last I looked on wings, chicken wings. There, there. That was Chris's number. That was. That's good. <laughs> no way for this week. <laughs> no, no. Oh, sorry. It was back up. Back oh, it was back up. Are, are chicken wing prices still rising quickly? I I, I hadn't I didn't, I didn't look. 
No. No. Mike Mike okay. Brisson knows. He's shaking his head. No, they're not rising as much. I'm in upstate New York. We uh, mainly eat chicken wings for food around here. So uh, they're going up in retail. I know that. <laughs> what, what did you say? He said it, upstate New York, we eat. That's what we eat. That's like Yeah, bu- buffalo wings. wings. It's all really? over upstate. Yeah. That's right. Buffalo. Buffalo. Yep. All right. Very good. Okay. All right, Jesse, that was very helpful. I really appreciate that. Chris, Ryan, anything, any pushback on? Be careful. Well, Jesse's very sensitive. You can't. What about the weather? Oh, yeah. Right. What about that? What I mean, about we got that? That's a good point, actually. I mean, yeah, what's going on? I don't there? know. I would, I'd be a little cautious. A little cautious. Yeah, this summer could be an issue. Yeah, I mean, droughts. Um, I think it's important to mention that food prices were really high in the first place, right? To, you know, well before the war um, in Russia and, and you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and that goes to just limited, you know, really bad climate conditions in, in your major bread baskets, North America, South America, um, Europe. And, you know, when, when you think of it, right, that, um, you know, when you look at grain prices, you know, they, they've shaken off the increase from Russia and Ukraine, but they're, they're still trading, um, you know, at the upper range. Um, the UN food price index is, is another great metric to look at, um, and that's been tracking record highs. Um, but, you know, when it comes to inflation, it's all about the increase, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how much worse can climate conditions get? I mean, they're pretty bad. I mean, farmers in Brazil are like up to their waist in soggy fields. Um, you know, Kansas is dealing with drought, you know, wheat and soy producing regions, uh, are really struggling uh, across the world. Um, and, you know, so that just, just goes back to the thing. Food prices are going to continue to hurt, right? Inflation's the change in food prices and how much more expensive they could get. Um, and, and like you said, Mark, we're, we've kind of reached, you know, we're near the peak of, of how much they're going to contribute to inflation on a year ago and month to month basis. But in the background is that, you know, food prices are high. Let's move on to uh, energy prices. And we've got both Chris Lepakis and Juan Pablo Fuentes here for, uh, uh, for that. Um, okay, guys. So you heard Ryan's uh, decomposition of inflation and energy is a big part of it. Obviously, energy prices, uh, gas prices, diesel prices, jet fuel prices, or pick, pick whatever it is, natural gas prices, they all seem to have peaked back a little over a month ago, tied into, I think, the European Union's decision to sanction Russian oil. They announced that in early June. Uh, Prices have come in since then. Um, If oil is our poster child uh, for this, then, you know, we were $120 per barrel, $125, I think, maybe uh, on Brent at the peak. We're now down below $100 a barrel. Uh, what's going on in the in the oil market, the energy markets, and and where do you think we're headed? And I'll begin with Chris, and then I'll turn to Juan to kind of fill in any gaps. Sure. So um, I think what happened was we had the Russian invasion when well, before that started to get priced in. Oil was around seventy, um, give or take, and that started to get priced in. It happened. We had uh, a spike up. There was a lot of uncertainty. Um, the prices fell when there was more certainty market participants felt that the EU was not going to ban crude oil. The administration did um, 
a coordinated release of oil from strategic petroleum reserves with other countries across the, the world. And prices fell all the way back down to around $95 per barrel. Um, and then at that point, market participants started to price in the probability of an EU ban on Russian oil. And prices went back up to 120 and now they've come back down um, to about $100, um, give or take, on WTI and Brent. Um, so that the, and there's a few reasons for the recent decline in the price of oil. I think that the main one um, would be fears of a recession. <clears throat> with the market um, being convinced that the Federal Reserve is gonna have to raise interest rates very aggressively to control inflation and that weighing on all commodity prices, um, including energy. And then the second is some some uncertainty about how the European Union will enforce or apply this ban because we've only got data through May, um, actual hard, and it's not even that hard, it can be revised, um, rush import data, and the EU has, as of May, did not reduce its imports of Russian crude oil. Now, there were some important steps that went into effect in, in May 15 that applied to energy trading firms like Baytol and Trafigura and so on and so forth that went into effect in May. And then the EU ban was announced in early June. So we'll have to see how the data involves, uh, evolves over the next couple months, June and July to get a sense of what is the true impact um, on global oil supply of um, the, the European embargo um, on, on Russian crude oil, but market participants are less worried that we're going to be short um, supply than they were a month ago. Um, and that, that has happened at the same time that the refining industry has responded. Um, so refinery capacity utilization has increased. Um, crack spreads have fallen. That's the difference between wholesale product prices and oil. So the difference between wholesale gasoline and crude oil, the difference between wholesale number two uh, uh, heating oil and crude oil, those have fallen dramatically. Um, and um, they are a part of consumer energy prices, which is ultimately what the CPI is measuring. And I think that there's further momentum for price declines um, in, in consumer energy prices in the month of July um, given where crack spreads um, are now. And that is a supply side response. And I mean, it's so often the case just broadly across the economy, but especially when it applies to commodities in the energy market that the cure for high prices is high prices. So we are seeing the supply side respond here to very strong incentives, I would think, to produce as much oil and refine as much oil as possible. Okay. So, uh, you know, what you're saying, uh, I'll paraphrase just like I did for Mike and for Jesse is that uh, the, the, uh, anyone who's going to sanction is sanctioned, or at least announce sanctions, and that the EU uh, has announced sanctions, but they really at this point have not implemented them. And it may, it, this is a risk, obviously, what they decide to do here, but they may decide, given they don't want to see oil prices go skyward here, they may decide to be slow in implementing any sanctions to make sure they there's enough oil supplies out there so that prices don't go skyward. They'll they'll be they'll calibrate their implementation of the sanctions, and also on top of that, the refiners here in the U.S. have been able to increase utilization capacity, the capacity utilization of the refineries, produce more uh, refined product, and so we've got lower oil prices, we've got lower crack spreads, and that means gas prices are starting to come in meaningfully. We're at five bucks a gallon regular unleaded 
record a month ago. We're now at 465 nationwide. I think that's that is that what consistent with our Wawa 465? I, I, I think we're pretty close at our local Wawa. Diesel prices, they they they've come in a little bit. Jet fuel prices have actually come in a lot, you know, relative to the peak. And assuming that we don't the EU doesn't start to really crack down on Russian oil. Uh, and the fact that we are getting more supply because the higher price, to your point about higher price leads to you know, solves the problem here because it elicits more supply response. Oil prices, gas prices should at very least not go higher and may with a little bit of luck go a little bit lower. Is that fair, that characterization? Well, yes, I think it's I think it's fair. I think that a lot will depend on how the EU w- will proceed and if it does crack down hard, how much of that oil is going to find its way into other countries anyways. Um, because as of May, if you look at China plus India plus Turkey, they had increased their imports of Russian crude oil by about 800,000 barrels per day. Um, and that's about the amount that actually the e, the U.S. Um, banned uh, that was entering the U.S. Um, along with the U.K., all of that oil has been rerouted um, to these other countries. And so the question is, if the EU um, is forceful, then, you know, how, how forceful will they be? And then how much will ultimately that Russian oil end up in other countries? So I think that there's a possibility for energy prices, uh, for, for, for oil prices to rise from here. But I think that the most likely case is that we do get, a, you know, a, a just they go sideways for a while. Got it. Got it. Hey, Juan, what do you think? Do you agree with this? Do you want to add any color? What do you think? Um, I agree with Chris. I think the main factor behind the recent declining prices is the fear of recession. Uh, so that's like more a market response to the to the sentiment in the market. Uh, the second reason I would say is that Russian oil supply has declined by far less than anticipated by the time the, the invasion took place. Uh, according to the International Energy Agency, Russian supply has declined only by 800,000 barrels per day. Uh, initially, they thought that supply was going to go down by 3 million barrels per day in, in just one month. Uh, so obviously, that's not happening. Uh, the deep discount of Russian oil is like everybody's buying Russian oil, everybody that can. Like I saw news today that Saudi Arabia has bought a lot of Russian oil. Really? Yeah. So they are using Why? the Russian because it's, it's deep. There's a deep discount. That's an arbitrage play. They buy the Russian, yeah, Russian so they, oil. And, yeah. They buy Russian oil that for to use for, for their uh, power plants. So they have more oil available for exports. Uh, so explain yeah. to me why there's a discount. I mean, if the markets are so tight, why do they have to sell at a discount? Because uh, there are sanctions in place. So okay. it's like uh, it's, it has also to do with this new uh, European talking about uh, capping oil prices for Russian oil. So I think what they're trying to do is let's, uh, we're not going to go after India or anybody that wants to buy Russian oil, but we're going to demand that they don't pay as, you know, market price. They have to pay a discounted price. So the idea is that Russian oil, the supply wouldn't be affected as much, but the money that Russia gets from from their oil sales are going to be affected by this uh, price cap. 
Uh, so that that's what's happening uh, the, after the invasion. I haven't checked lately, but the discount was like twenty, thirty dollars per barrel initially. Yeah, the discount uh, on Russian oil. On Russian yeah. oil. Let me ask so, you. I, I just confu- uh, I'm con- all of a sudden confusing myself. So the the Brent oil price, which is the global price for oil broadly, uh-huh. does that reflect the Russian discount? No. No, it does that's, not. That's, 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 no, that, that's, that's what pay. What, that's what Europeans pay for for oil. In, in, in uh, I see. Okay, for, so they're playing. They're actually paying less. We're paying. The U.S. produce uh, refiners are paying more because we're not yeah. we're not getting any Russian oil. So we're paying more right. than European right. refiners. Let's say. Well, the Europeans are also not getting the Russian oil. So the, the ones that are taking advantage of the discount are in China, China, and China India. Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these are countries that are that can afford to like go around the sanctions, uh, or they are not afraid of getting uh, sanctioned by Europe or the US. Uh, so they are taking advantage of this discount, but okay. Europe and, and the US have to pay full price. Uh, so this brand or WTI, in the case of the US. Uh, so the other thing I would say in terms of the inflation, I kind of disagree a little bit with the Chris on, on the refinery situa- situation uh, in the US. Uh, I feel like refineries are basically operating at full capacity right now. And the refinery capacity has been down almost like by 2 million barrels per day in the last two years. So refinery capacity in the U.S. is at the beginning of this year was 17.1 million barrels per day. Uh, that's down from 19 uh, two years ago. Uh, so there is no really room for increasing uh, production of uh, Well, how do you gas. explain the lower crack spreads? What's, what's well, the crack spreads uh, went up substantially uh, up to like mid-June. They have come down a little bit, but they are still uh, a lot higher than they were uh, by the beginning of the year. So uh, right now, is they're almost at one dollar per gallon, which is uh, uh, is high. Still very elevated. It's still very high. Yeah. yeah. So the, if you look at the declining prices, uh, in, so gas, gas, and diesel prices have no are increasing more than oil prices and are coming down le- by less than oil prices in, in July. Okay. Uh, so right. the, 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 I think that that situation is gonna continue. Like gas prices are gonna overperform crude prices. Yeah, of course, I don't think you would argue, would you disagree? I mean, refining capacity is still very tight. Right. I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, we went from 88% refining capacity to 94.5%, which is where we're at right now. And so I what I was referencing is the decline in yeah. the crack spread from June to July. So when that July CPI print comes out, you're going to see some relief from energy. For, uh, energy is actually going to be deflationary for the first time in, uh, you know, since the invasion of Ukraine um, on that July CPI report. Right. Okay. You know, I, I, you know, I do think this is the refining capacity is a big deal because I mean, one of the th- threats in my mind is we get a Cat Five hurricane, blows through the Gulf, wipes out a refiner on the Texas coast for I don't know three, four, five, takes it offline three, four, five, six weeks. 
we got a big problem at that point, right? I mean, crack spreads gap out, gas prices go back over $5 a gallon. And I don't know, it feels like that's enough to push us in given. And that. inventory levels are very low for, very low. for gasoline and diesel. So this keeps going back to Chris's three's point that, yeah, we might make our way through if nothing else goes wrong, but you know, okay. So if I forecast say uh, a year from now, uh, that uh, the energy CPI is flat, zero con contribution to inflation. Does that sound about right to you? I mean, it could be lower, but do you think it could be higher? Obviously, but you know, what's the best forecast? Basically, flat, Chris. Yeah, I would go flat. Um, uh, if not price declines, because price like declines. Okay. we have, there's very, very strong incentive to produce crude oil and, um, and to refine crude oil. Um, you know, a lot of it, it, there's just a lot of uncertainty with respect to what happens to Russian oil supply. And I mean, like I can construct really bad scenarios where the EU cracks down really hard. Russia can't resell the oil to anybody else. And then OPEC countries have kind of tapped out in terms of their excess capacity and then we don't go into recession and then there's where does the oil supply come from in 2023 like i can construct that scenario very easily um but yeah i think that the most likely scenario is probably for energy prices a year from now to be consumer energy prices to be close to where they are right now okay all right fair enough okay good um thank you for that let's move on to rents cpi for housing services. And hey, Chris, I'm going to call on you. You're, yep. uh, you're really good at this. Um, explain to me how we measure uh, the CPI for housing services. It feels, uh, well, it's, I know it's quite complicated <laughs> and uh, this feels a little weird compared to the, everything else uh, in the CPI. Do you want to discuss that for a little bit and what it means for uh, how inflation right now for 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 housing? Yeah, sure. I'll uh, I'll try to give you an abbreviated version. Yeah. It is quite complex. So we could be here yeah. all day. Um, essentially, well, housing is a bit different than other goods uh, in in the uh, in the economy in, in the CPI, in that it a house has both consumption and investment value. Right. The objective of the uh, CPI, why we construct the consumer price index, is to price the uh, changes in the, in the consumption value of the goods and services that uh, consumers are purchasing, right? So the, the, ideally, we want to ignore or abstract the, uh, the investment component of housing and uh, focus just on the consumption uh, component. So there's this concept of um, the user of the, um, the consumption value of housing that the uh, BLS has come up with, which essentially looks at rents, first of all. So for renters, it's pretty easy. Right? If you're renting a house, the price change for you in terms of the housing services you're consuming is the rent change itself. Right, So I don't think there's any dispute or any real question if you're thinking about someone who's renting. The, uh, the deeper question is for those households that own their, their property, so the owner-occupied uh, properties. Right, They're not paying a formal rental payment every month. So how do you capture the value or the, price, the inherent price of, of their homes. And uh, the BLS has actually gone back and forth on a couple of different methodologies. So originally prior to 1983, they actually used a user cost concept. It said, hey, if, you're, if you uh, own your home, you have to pay 
mortgage, uh, mortgage. So there's mortgage interest expense, there's uh, property taxes, there's uh, maintenance, uh, other um, expenses that, uh, that you have. We can simply look at those and measure the change in those on a year over year or month over month basis. And that can proxy as the, um, as the change in the, uh, in the housing service, right? So that, that was fine for a while, except that right around the early 1980s, of course, there were a lot of uh, um, new mortgage products that came online. So adjustable rate mortgages became more popular. So that impacted their methodology. Um, prior to the, the early 80s, you had uh, the FHA controlling much of the mortgage market. So things were fairly homogenous and standardized. So you could look at um, those user costs and get a pretty uh, decent uh, approximation of what uh, price or what um, housing prices uh, were, were looking like, our service prices were, were looking like. But as we uh, got those new products, mortgage products, and as the FHA lost some of its market share, things got much more complicated. So the, the BLS switched over to a, uh, a method that involves this concept of uh, owner equivalent rent, where essentially they, uh, they will uh, look at homeowners and try to uh, approximate what uh, the homeowners would be paying in rent uh, if they didn't own the homes uh, them, uh, outright. And they do that uh, by essentially surveying the, the broader rental market Right. They look at about 50,000 uh, properties in, in their survey. They collect data on those rents, and then they normalize or standardize those, those uh, rental values by excluding utilities and trying to account for quality adjustments, just as they do with all the other prices. And then separately, they, um, they conduct a survey of homeowners to get an understanding of what homeowners believe is the uh, value that they could rent their, their homes out for. And they use that survey in order to uh, calculate the weights uh, that they use in, in the CPI itself. So the, the um, 23, 24% weight that uh, is attached to owner's equivalent rent comes from this separate uh, survey. So it's a, it's a bit convoluted, right, as mm. you can gather here. But the idea, uh, again, uh, fundamentally is to try to approximate the uh, value of the housing service itself and, and abstract that from the appreciation in home values, which are investment or capital assets. Here's the thing that I find interesting if, if I've got it right. Yeah. So, you know, food prices rise 10%. That means for the typical American household, they're shelling out 10% more to buy food. I mean, it's coming out of my checking account. I got or it's going yeah. on my card. I, I, I got to shell out this cash. For housing, for homeowners equivalent, right? For people who own their own home, which is 25% of the CPI index big chunk of the index. That's not true, right? Because most homeowners, their monthly payment, mortgage payment doesn't change month to month. They have a 30-year fixed rate loan or a 15-year fixed rate loan, or they have no mortgage at all. In fact, a lot people don't realize this, but um, a lot of people don't have a mortgage. You know, they're older, they paid down their mortgage, they never had, they paid with cash, whatever. So for them, the increase in consumer prices for housing services doesn't reflect an increase in their cash outlays, you know, how much they have to spend each month and therefore the, uh, no impact on their ability to buy other stuff on their purchasing power. Right. Is that right? That's true. You know, I, I, yeah. I guess I would explain that as uh, just in some sense, there are different weights, right? The, uh, the CPI is this general aggregate measure. There's actually no one that actually consume, no household actually consumes the, uh, 
the goods and services in the in the CPI index with the weights uh, that uh, that are assigned, right? It's this aggregate. It's this aggregation, right? So, yeah, you could certainly have a, a different measure of inflation for the homeowner that owns their property outright than the renter, right? So there, there's that aspect that you know, all, all inflation is personalized. So the weights may differ. And that, but I think there's also more uh, a conceptual question in terms of what you're trying to measure, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that you own your home and you're not uh, paying a, uh, making a, a uh, payment every month, an explicit payment every, every month, right? That doesn't mean that there's no value to the housing cons- uh, services that you have consumed that month, right? So it's, Depends on what, uh, what we're trying yeah, to Yeah, no, no, I, I hear assess. you. It's just that we often, like Ryan has this great statistic, you know, uh, for the typical American household, they have to shell out $496, is that right? Per month yeah. more. 93. $493 more mm-hmm. a month in the month of June to buy the same goods and services that they bought last year because of the 9.1% CPI inflation. That isn't exactly true, right? Because- for the yeah, homeowners, the they, they're, they're not shelling out any more than they did a year ago. In fact, Ryan, I think we might want to calculate that. That would be kind of cool, actually. We can uh, do that. Because we, we use the CPI to, cal- to like calculate, quote unquote, real income. That's the purchasing power of the consumer. And we're probably overstating the hit to purchasing power from using the CPI because of this this this, the way we're measuring things on housing. Is that fair to say? I think it depends. There's still an opportunity cost, right? But it's not cash right. coming out of the bank, you know? No, right? it's not cash coming out of the bank, but okay. you, know, there, you can yeah. you can generate all sorts of examples, right? So if a person owns their house and suddenly they, they, they move, right? Yeah, well, now, suddenly, now they have a payment, yeah, yeah, right? Can, so, yeah, right. And, no, you, you make a good point. I just, I just find that it's a really fascinating question. Uh, interesting, but but actually, most importantly, what's going on? I mean, rent inf- rents are you know market rents. Forget about the CPI. Market rents have been rising double digit year over year, yep. everywhere, and now it's bleeding into the CPI measure and adding to overall inflation. So, how, you know, what's why? What's going on? And where are we headed? Yeah, that, that's right. The uh, the the, um, the impact of rising rents um, takes time or enters the CPI with a lag because, uh, again, the, the uh, survey that the, the BLS conducts is of, of all current uh, rental properties, right? Given that leases typically are a year or more, even though new, the, um, the uh, rent on new properties or new leases may be increasing, it takes some time for that to bleed in uh, to the uh, prices that all households are facing. So uh, house prices have been rising um, through some research that I and others have conducted. It takes about five, six quarters for house price increases to translate into uh, rental uh, increases. So uh, we're in for uh, sustained uh, rental increases in the CPI for a while here, probably until this time next year. Um, This month, rental payments rose by 0.8%, right? So that's up from the 0.6% last month, right? So you still have the the effects of the uh, rises in, in housing prices. And the lot and the amount of demand uh, that's out there uh, for for rentals persisting, and that is having an effect. So I expect that to continue to contribute to uh, CPI, you know, over the next year, probably adding a point point and a half uh, each month. So. Got it. Okay. 
So, so uh, no reliefs there anytime in the near future, certainly not by this time next year. Yeah. No, no. So, and even if we go into recession again, because of the lags in the Stop with that recession talk, please. We, I mean, <laughs> even the lags are going to uh, continue to persist for a yeah. while. Okay. Here's what I want to do, because this has already been, it's been a very informative podcast, but it's getting a little long in the tooth. I mean, I'm not sure people can, because we're going into the DNA here. on yeah. So let's do this. I, I want to eat. I want you, Chris, you, Ryan, and then I will give a forecast for top line CPI inflation. We're at 9-1 in June. What are we going to be in December of this year? What are we going to be in December of 2023? And when are we going to get back to the Fed's inflation target, which, as we've talked about, is 2.5% top part of the range for the CPI? And then after we're done that, let's go play the game. And, and the game here, I'm, I'm going to mix it up a little bit because we got a lot of folks on the call. I'm going to pick on, does everyone have a statistic? Do you all guys, everyone have a statistic? Well, I think we might use mics already. I'm not sure. But I might call on you and see if you've got a statistic for the game. And we'll, is that Okay. That's fine. You up for it? I know you're up for it, Ryan. You, I'm always, always up for it. it. Yeah. All right. All right. So the highlight I, of my week. I, I see Chris. He's like deer. I, you know, deers in the headlights. Are you, uh, you okay playing the game, Chris? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm trying to come up with not you. Game. The other Chris. You. You. Oh. I know. Yeah. <laughs> the other Chris. Are you Can you play the game, or are you not prepared? No, I can play the game. Okay, fine. All right, we're gonna, gonna play, play the, game. the game, and then we weren't gonna play the game, and now we're gonna play the game. I know. So well, I changed my mind. I'm allowed okay. to do that. Yeah. Yeah, mixing it up a little bit. Okay, so all right, uh, Ryan, your mm-hmm. what is the forecast for top line CPI inflation um, here? What, what do you think? End of this year will be close to six percent, and then December of twenty twenty three. Yep. This is under the assumption of no recession. No recession. No recession. Uh, will be three down to three percent. Three. And when do we get back to the Fed's target? Two First and a half, half of 2024. First half. That's right. Okay. That's fair enough. That's a little bit ambiguous, but we'll go with it. First you half. Mean, all right. March 13th at 4 p.m. Okay. That's much better. <laughs> Very right, good. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 9 1 in June of this year, 6 December of 2022, mm-hmm. 3. December of 2023 and March, we'll back yep. to two and a half percent. Right. Okay. Chris? Uh, so this is uncanny. Uh, 6% end of the year was my yeah. prediction as well. And then uh, I had two, 2.75%. Ooh, end of December. two decimals. That is that's, quite that's precise. A, that's really. a lot of confidence. Well, you said I, I had. I mean, do you actually you have a forecast? No, no, that, that, that's what I wrote down. Oh, you wrote, wrote down. down. Okay, all right. And then when do we get back to two and a half? Then I like March. I put down April. But oh, you put down April around okay. that around that uh, time period. Man. Okay. Well, we're we're, uh, we're in sync. Okay. Mine mine is actually a little higher. Seven percent ish. December of this year, three and a half percent by the end of 2023. And we don't get to two and a half until uh, May of uh, 2024. But, you know, having said that, it feels like we could see a period of actual decline and then it comes Mm -hmm. back up again or something because of the swings in energy prices that are related. Okay, but we're all, 
well, we're all roughly the same and we're all going to be wrong. It feels like, um, probably. Yeah. Hopefully not. That's the baseline outlook though. Okay. Very good. Uh, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, and I don't know that we have time to really belabor it, but the other reason I'm more, I feel reasonably confident that inflation is going to get back down in that kind of trajectory is inflation expectations. You know, what people think inflation is going to be in the future. And that's key actual, actually to where we're headed in, uh, you know, here going forward. And, and at least in the, the measures that come, of inflation expectations that come out of the bond market, they seem to come right back into the Fed's target if you look out a little further. And here's the other thing I just want to, maybe I'll just throw it out there. It's related to expectations. Get any, uh, any uh, feedback that you have. My sense is that, and this is just talking to people. And then, you know, obviously I've seen, I, I remember, you guys don't remember the high inflation of the 70s and 80s. I remember that, right? Because that was kind of my formative years in, in, uh, in, in school when I was learning economics. Uh, and back then, the psychology was, as I recall, this is, you know, my family psychology. It, you know, we need to buy it now. Because if we don't buy it now, it's going to cost us more in three months and six months, right? So we would actually buy forward because we were fearful that we would have to pay more just a few months later. That's not the psychology I think people have today, right? That I'm not going to buy now because I think it's going to be priced lower in the future. Take a vehicle. I, you know, Most people aren't going to buy a vehicle, I don't think, if they don't have to today, right, Mike? Because I think most people think they're going to... Because it, it doesn't make sense that used vehicle prices are high as they are. That would you agree with that? Uh, not exactly. Oh, really? um, okay. I, I, I think people don't think prices are going to come down right away. And if you need a car right now, you need a car. Yeah, um, yeah. But if I have a time, I'm not going to buy it now. If I need it next year. Yeah. Okay. All right. Do Chris and 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 Ryan, do you have generally the same view on inflation expectations and, and how they? Mm. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the only thing where people are buying now. Even with prices, right? Is housing? That's the only area. Oh, I even there. I, yeah, I don't. That's I don't, changing. Yeah, that's changing fast. Yeah. Well, because of mortgage, yeah, but not around, not around us in Philadelphia. I, I think. I think. Uh, I, well, we'll I think the smart money's already decided to go on the sidelines. The investors, they. Yeah. I think the new homes definitely. Oh, new homes, absolutely oh, yeah, new. Yeah. Yeah, new. The, the builders are discounting very aggressively already. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Let's play the game. Game is um, uh, we each come up with a statistic. Uh, the best statistic is one, and we the rest of us try to figure that out through questioning and deductive reasoning and uh, cajoling the person with the statistic. Uh, best statistic is one that is not so easy that we all get it too quickly, not so hard that we never get it, and obviously if it's related to the topic at hand, which has been inflation, that would be a bonus. So with that, let me start with uh, Ryan. Ryan, because Ryan's the maven at this and mm -hmm. I'll let him lead the way. Go ahead, give us your numbers. Minus 61%. I know what that is. There is no way, no. I do indeed know what that is. Oh, wait, is. did you have another presentation with- I, I know right. what that is. And I want, it? I want multiple cowbells. When, when I tell you what that is, multiple, multiple. Well, I want you now to get out of your cowbell right now. Pricing. All right. I got it right I here. Want a, I want a cowbell ring. Let me hear it. Yeah. Okay. Chris, where's your cowbell, man? Oh, all right. All right. Are you ready? Ring it for me. 
Ringer, and I didn't get nope. any answer yet. I'm so confident in this. <laughs> minus 61. That is the percent of small business to say the economy is not going to, it's going to suck six months from now. <laughs> Should I use that word? That was a bad word. No, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. All right. Okay. Am I right, Mr. You're Street? right. Yeah, okay. very good. Yeah. Okay. There we go. There we go. Very good. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, uh, uh, Jesse, what do you think of that? Are you impressed by that or what? Does that make um, you think any better? Don't don't do it, Jesse. Me? Don't feed into it. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm Zoom thinking, bots is going to have to get bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking least of the cowbell now. I mean, you got it on the first try, and that was barely a ring. I mean, I know, do we have an, over a year? Do we have an, an an air horn in post production? We can add a nice beep, 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 for Mark getting that I'm on the for that. first try. Yeah. Very good. I love Jesse. Did you, did I really you look love at this? Jesse. Huh? Historically, when it's minus twenty percent, we're in a recession. It's, it's minus sixty-one percent. Far and away, record low, right? By far. So if you look yeah, at you know, what it was magnitude. around yeah, the Great Recession, early nineteen nineties, the nineteen uh, early two thousands, nineteen nineties, this thing is by far. They're very, very pessimistic, and I mean, you make the point all the time that a recession is a loss of faith. Yeah, loss of faith. Uh, of course, we do know that sentiment. It, it's it's. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but that small business survey tends to be very conservative, Republican-dominated mm-hmm. response. Particularly that question. You're exactly yeah. right. So we've looked at it, you know, at least historically, when there's a Democrat in the office, it understates economic activity. When there's a Republican, their expectations overstate future economic activity. But if you, I was working on this, if you adjust it, it's still, you know, beyond that 20% threshold. Yeah. Okay. So businesses are pretty pessimistic and you All may right. start to see signs of that showing up in jobless claims in industrial production. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, Mr. Lafakis, you're up. What's your statistic? Hey, um, my statistic is 12 million. 12 million. Uh, energy related? Energy related, yes. Uh, Arrows? <laughs> you you're getting close so the unit is um the unit is million barrels per day 12 million barrels per day european related no it's a u.s related statistic okay is that what's in inventory it's not inventory is it it's not related to oil inventories it's it's not an inventory uh, figure, but um, oh, that was pretty evasive. Yeah, it, it is yeah. oil related. <laughs> it's oil related, but not related to oil inventories. Correct. Oh, correct. Okay, twelve million barrels a day. Uh, well, we consume nineteen million barrels a day, uh, or a little, a little over nineteen and a half million barrels a day. Uh, is that? Uh, uh, is this what's left in the SPR? No, it's a lot no, more than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that's about it's like 200. 600 million barrels. 600 million. Yeah. That's a lot of barrels. Per day? No, no, no. not barrels. Oh, per I was day. wondering if you adjusted oh. yeah. oh, And I know they're pulling out 1 million barrels a day from the SPR, right? Because that's mm. what the refiners can actually process. Um, hmm. That's interesting. Uh, 12 million barrels a day. Is it related to demand in some way? Um, not really. It's no. Okay. All right. Production. Yes. 
Okay. It is. I was about to say we're gonna need to pull a, you know, a lifeline here and get Juan Pablo. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what the that's we that's actual crude that we're producing. Twelve million. Oh, it's not the refined product. That includes the refined product gets us up to closer to. We had this conversation before. I know. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's crude oil production. Crude oil. And and Chris, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but and Juan Pablo, the number of rigs continues to rise slowly the number of rigs that are out there in the fracking field is that right yes yeah there was a very interesting uh, statistic that i saw in the latest dallas uh, survey uh like 95 percent of oil executives say that they are facing uh, shortages like labor equipment uh so that's that's kind of holding them down yeah yeah, it's increasing, but it, it, it actually the trajectory looks it's a little slow, slow yeah. relative it's to very slow. norms. Yeah, very slow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good so statistics. That's the uh, barrier versus regulation. Yeah. So, uh, like, I don't know. I could have picked like the crack spread because I think it was, it's very interesting, like the diesel crack spread. It was over um, $100. Uh, per barrel of oil and now it's fallen to around 40 for for uh for diesel which is is significant and has implications for like July inflation but we already talked about that. I think what's interesting though and the direction that I wanted to lead us down is like the the idea of our US producers going to respond to the very strong price incentives they have. Yeah. And that 12 million barrels per day of production that's in the week ending July 8th that's up from only 11.8 million barrels per day at the end of last year in the weekend mm. December 31st. So despite, you know, the, the, the rig count has progressively increased, um, the, the low hanging fruit in the shale patch has, has already been picked. And so you have to incrementally drill more to achieve the same level of production, um, that you would have maybe four or five years ago. Um, but I do think that we're reaching a point where, you know, U.S. oil production um, will start to respond in a meaningful way um, to the high price environment that we have. Got it. Got it. Very helpful. OK, Chris uh, Dorides, uh, what's your statistic? OK, I'm going with a fun one to lighten things up here. 100, 199.2. 199.2. Well, I'll make it even more direct. $199.20. $199? And 20 cents. 20 cents. Yeah. All right. Is that how much more a month people are spending on their gas bills than a year nope. ago? Nope. Nope. Wow, that'd be it's a lot. Probably pretty close, right? I would think that's pretty close. Probably. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Actually, <laughs> is this related to your trip? Twenty cents. This is related to your vacation. These are always about me. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so directly. It's is is it the increase in spending due to some form of inflation? No, no, it's, it's no. no, no. Okay, all right. Is it something to do with inflation? Uh, prices. It's prices. Yep. Prices. So, what's worth one hundred ninety nine dollars and twenty cents? Chris's shirt. Chris's what? <laughs> His new shirt. <laughs> His new shirt. Yeah, he wears those. I think, so. I, think I said howdy duty shirts, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like a howdy duty. All right. Okay. Commodity price, Chris. It is. Oh, the coffee. It is. You got it. Oh, oh way to go, Chris. Chris Lafakis. Well, yeah. 
uh, where's the cowbell? That's right I here. That was pretty good. There you go. Okay. So, so explain that, uh, Chris Dorides. Uh, so that uh, coffee prices are actually falling. They're down 13%. Oh. So that bodes well for the future um, CPI print. Roasted coffee was actually up uh, last month, right? So presumably those, those lower coffee futures will, will bleed in. So I thought that was uh, Yeah, useful. pretty cool. Yeah, very That's good. Like Chris is in at least something's falling in, in price. Yeah, yeah there, you there you go. That's why Chris is smiling. It's not his vacation. It's that coffee prices are coming down. You know, yeah, yeah. I don't know about hazelnuts, but mm-hmm. coffee. Mm-hmm. Hazelnut espresso. Oh, ha- hazelnut is it, it, always worth the price you pay. Oh. I got <laughs> a hazelnut latte right here. There you go. Oh, my, but my finished consumer price went up by 48%. I was just telling these guys before we started recording. Uh, all of a sudden, it just I was telling my wife how cheap it was compared to Starbucks. And the next day, it went up 48%. Oh, geez. That's great. That's a good story. All right. Okay. We got to end. We got to end this thing. Wait, uh, you don't have one. Was that? I, I do, yeah. but I, I really, we, I mean, it's really, I don't, this has been going on for a while. So I do want to say, and I've got a good one, but I'll save it for next week. It'll still be relevant. Um, quickly odds of recession next 12 months, net 24. Uh, Chris Dorides, what are they? What's yours? And have they changed? They have changed. Oh. 50. 50 and 65. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yours had to change. My, who's who's you? Yours. Why? Because of the yield curve? You, yeah, your favorite. That you, no, you I haven't changed yet. That. I'm not, no, not quite yet. I need, I need another week. I'm the at, yield I'm curve was the most I'm at 40 and basically even odds. So 40% next year, basically even odds. But you're right. I'm getting a little uncomfortable because mm-hmm. of the yield curve. But we'll come back to that next week. And you, Ryan? Haven't changed. Well, 65.3. I'm okay. nudging really, oh, really no. close, getting closer. One year, 65. And you're actually lower over a two-year yeah. run. Yeah, because if, if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next 12 months. Yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. We, we can, we, oh. yeah, Chris, you missed it last week. Uh, we, we discussed that, but we'll come, we'll definitely. So yours on. is incremental? It's a, I thought we were within 12, within 24. Oh. So, oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, maybe I have to. Oh we're no! Doing everything thinking, wrong. Well, actually, yeah, yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to focus, we'll have to define it more clearly next yeah. time. Yes, yes, yeah. Define terms. Point. Yeah, actually, actually, a good point. Okay, so uh, we're going to call it a podcast. So again, Chris, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Middleway Econ. And what's yours, Ryan? That real time underscore econ. And of course, mine's at Mark Zandy at Mark Zanny. With that, we're going to call this a podcast. I hope you found it of some interest and value, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care now.